for those of you who aren't normally with us, uh, those scripture readings usually connect with the sermon in some way, shape, or form, so they're not chosen randomly, um, and I will allude to them in the course of this sermon. So let's turn to Matthew 6, not Matthew, I did it again, for the love, I just can't say Mark. <laughs> I don't know what's in my brain lately. Mark chapter 6. Um, the oft-neglected gospel, maybe that is the problem, that we don't spend enough time in the gospel of Mark. Um, so we're at the end, we're going to actually wrap up chapter 6 today. It's verses 53 through 56. Um, and when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he, he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that, he might, uh, that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this word is God-breathed and that it is useful for us to instruct us and to make us wise for salvation, but also uh, to reveal to us more fully who Jesus is, uh, to correct us, to admonish us and rebuke us, as well as to prepare us uh, for good deeds. And so um, use this uh, use this time uh, to accomplish these great goals of yours, um, greater than my goals. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> A little froggy this morning because of, I think, allergy season has begun. One of the interesting things that I've done this week as I've kind of tried to process all that's going on around the world with uh, this virus and the uh, pandemic, is I decided to look into hospital beds. Not to buy one, uh, but I was thinking about it in terms of, because people keep saying we don't want to become Italy, and so I tried to understand Italy better, and I tried to understand our country better, and going into this little bit of research that I did, I figured, well, they have socialized medicine. They probably have far fewer hospital beds per person than we do. And so I went to Google and I put it in there and ended up in Wikipedia, found a page that listed all of these different countries. And uh, amongst the information there, it was how many beds per thousand people. Uh, and I was shocked. Top of the list was Japan. 13.05 beds per thousand people. South Korea was not too far behind, and that's one of the reasons why they did fairly well in the pandemic, uh, at 12.27. Germany, since I prayed for one of my friends in Germany, uh, be of good cheer, um, 8.06. Not too bad, but you're not, still not up there with Japan and South Korea. China has 4.35, and then we get to Italy. 3.18. Spain, which is another hot spot in Europe right now, 2.97. And here's where I kind of went, 
Oops, but hold on. 2.77. Far less beds per thousand people. Just for our Canadian friends, I want you to know, 2.52. You have less than we do in America. Now, <clears throat> not sure exactly what lies behind the numbers. It could be that, you know, we've changed, we have a different approach to healthcare. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've noticed that there's far more outpatient surgeries. So I don't know if those outpatient beds are really considered uh, moving people to rehab centers, those sorts of things uh, that may influence this lower number that the United States has. Because I, then I then found great encouragement in another number that was right next to that number. And that number is occupancy rate. Yes. How many of those beds are actually filled? That is an important question. So when we get to Japan, which has the most, 75.5% of their beds are occupied. South Korea didn't have a number. Germany, it was 79.8. Uh, then you get to Italy. 78.9 are normally filled. That's before you have a pandemic. In the U.S., it's only 64%. And so while we have fewer beds available per thousand people, not as many of them are being used. And it's, we're better able to withstand something like this unless you're in New York City and uh, it's really a hot spot right now. Back to Canada for my friends from Canada. This is not encouraging. 91.6% of those beds are full. So... Keep that one in mind, folks. Swamped. Some of these nations are swamped before a pandemic hits. And then imagine how much more swamped they are after a pandemic hits. Uh, the disciples have sort of just been swamped, not by sick people, but they've been swamped uh, by the waves and Jesus has calmed the storm as he walked out on the water to meet them and revealed more of his glory, but they're about to be swamped by something else, which is why I talked about hospital beds. Where did Jesus and his disciples go when he, Jesus got into the boat? And we, we, we answer this from verses, well, the whole four verses, 53 through 56, the disciples, if we remember, had been sent to Bethsaida. And, uh, you know, this is the first week of the direct stream, so we don't have um, images that we're going to toss up for this. So we're going back to the invisible map, okay? We're going to pretend for a moment that this cross is the Sea of Galilee, a.k.a. the Lake of Gennesaret, okay? Bethsaida is way up here, Okay. The northern part, a little bit to the, to the east, uh, that's where they were going to. But they go to Gennesaret, which is kind of over here-ish. Okay? A little bit to the west of where they intended to go. When Jesus stopped the wind, they didn't just continue where they were going. They changed unexpectedly. The city and region of Gennesaret is a, a fertile plain that is southwest of Bethsaida, and it's an unexpected place for them to go. 
We don't know what they expected when they got there. Now, think about this. this for those of you who know or you can look back right now at what had happened, that we had the night before, all night long, basically, Jesus was praying on the sea, on the, the shore, and the disciples are trying to get to Bethsaida and not getting anywhere because the wind has stirred, uh, stirred up the waves and everything else, and so they've been fighting with the oars all night long. They are exhausted. They are not, I imagine, in the mood for ministry. Uh, I know what insomnia is like, and, and I've worked uh, overnight shifts when I worked in the hospital before, and, and uh, come in the morning, I am not ready to function. And that's when I was younger. These guys are weary. These guys are looking for rest. They're looking for refreshment. And that's not what meets them. They land there at Gennesaret, and immediately the people recognized Jesus. And so what we see is we get a glimpse into the reality of how popular Jesus was, how great his reputation was in that area around the Sea of Galilee and in Galilee itself, uh, that the, the ministry of Jesus and his disciples had made such a profound effect upon the people that they know who he is. And they act upon the fact that he's shown up. It's not just paparazzi. It's not, it's not people who are coming to get autographs or anything like that. What we do find is that they go and get the sick. They run to the people that they love. They run to bring those sick people, sometimes in their cots, to Jesus. Wherever Jesus happens to go, and it talks about the breadth of where Jesus was going within Galilee. It talks about villages. It talks about cities. It talks about the countryside. And they bring them to the marketplace, which is the center of life for one of those communities. That's where you bought and sold everything. That's where you got all the local news that was going on. And because of the traders, you got some of the foreign news that was going on. Because, of course, there's no internet, there's no TV, there's no radio. That's how you hear about things. It was the center of cultural life for these people. And now these marketplaces are being flooded oh, with, with the sick in the hopes that Jesus will heal these people. They're swarmed. Swamped. See, Jesus is on the move, and yet everywhere he goes, he's confronted with sick people. Jesus and the disciples are swamped by the sick. Everywhere they go in this region of Galilee, the sick. It's interesting that there are two different words that are used that most translations translate as sick. In verse 55, uh, the word used has, has this connotation of to be miserable, uh, to, to be sick, to be ill, and it sort of focuses on the reality of misery that accompanies illness. Uh, a couple years ago, my whole family got strep, and uh, I was patient zero in the household. Um, I don't know how this happens sometimes, um, but that was one of the most miserable weeks of my life. Um, between the fever and everything else, uh, the, the cough, uh, just everything. I was incredibly miserable 
that week. And so this word brings up that, that aspect of illness, of, of the misery. The second word, which we find in verse 56, uh, focuses really on the feeble, to be weak, to be without strength. And it focuses on, on sort of the powerlessness that you experience when you're sick. And that same time that I had the strep, I remember when my fever broke and, and I just wanted to collapse. I wasn't sure I could make it to my bed. Uh, I felt that weak in that moment. I was so powerless. And so uh, these are people who aren't just sick, uh, aren't just lame, uh, aren't just heart, you know, deaf or whatever illness or disease or uh, ailment they have, malady they have, uh, but they're miserable and they're weak and unable to change their condition. Now, let's stop for a moment. Gennesaret was not unusual. Jesus lived in a world full of miserable and powerless people. And as this gospel that Mark has written gets to uh, the people in Rome, uh, they just have to look out the door and they will see sick, powerless, miserable people. And in uh, us, even without a pandemic going on, uh, we experience and we see uh, people who are miserable and powerless still exists. The pandemic merely exaggerates all of this. Now there are more people than usual who will be experiencing this misery, this powerlessness. We see this because Adam's sin loosed this sea of powerlessness and misery that swamps and not just the disciples then, but disciples now. That's the bad news. The good news, as we'll see, is that this means that there are ministry opportunities everywhere. And so Jesus brings us to unexpected places, full of misery and empty of power. Well, how did Jesus respond to this endless parade of miserable and powerless people? And we see that predominantly in verse 56. But I want us to remember that such profound suffering can be incredibly overwhelming. Right? Uh, think for a moment of healthcare workers in hot zones. Whether it's uh, what was taking place in Washington State, what's going on right now in uh, in New York, I, what's happening in Iran and Italy, uh, those people are incredibly overwhelmed. They they don't want to see another face, another sick person. It's like, please let it stop. Let the waves of of victims stop, so I can deal with the ones I already have. They're overwhelmed. They're not sure how much longer they can go on. Sometimes we project our own limitations upon Jesus. And, and one of the places where I see this, I, I love the play Jesus Christ Superstar. 
I mean, I, I, when I first got into Deep Purple, Ian Gillen sang the, uh, the vocals on the old album, and I bought that album, and I just fell in love with that thing. It's, it's, it's still, there's a lot, of, a lot of it that resonates well with me, but not this part. In the song, The Temple, we see a very weak Jesus. It starts with uh, Jesus entering the temple, and it's focused on um, the selling of things in the temple. But then halfway through, it shifts to the sick people in the temple. And this, will you touch, will you, will you touch, will you mend me, Christ? I don't want to sing it because I'll completely botch it. Thank you All right, for, for affirming my inability, <laughs> my powerlessness, and, and wanting to avoid greater misery upon you. Okay. But will you touch, will you mend me, Christ? Will you touch, will you hear me, Christ? And this, uh, this refrain kind of goes on and on, and it, it seems to increase in intensity because there's more and more people that are beginning to swarm Jesus. And finally, Jesus responds in this song, this, um, not the real Jesus, obviously. There's too many of you. Don't push me. There's too little of me. Don't crowd me. And then finally exasperated, heal yourselves. What Andrew Lloyd Webber has done is make a Jesus in his own image. And that is not the Jesus that we find here in Mark chapter 6. That we've, that's not the Jesus we have been finding throughout the gospel of Mark as we've been studying. That is not the Jesus. This is not a Jesus who runs away and tries to hide from the pressures of ministry. It's not a Jesus who is overwhelmed by the needs of the people that confront him. We find a very different Jesus. But let's note, they implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. Now, that would be the kind of the end of his garment, but what likely these words are pointing to are the tassels of his garment. In Numbers 15, for instance, we see the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord and to do them not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. And so uh, they were given this command by God through Moses in Numbers 15 to put these blue tassels on the corners of their garments so that they would be reminded that there is a God. That they would be reminded uh, that they were not to seek their own interests, but rather the interests of Him. It was, a, it was given to them as a warning about their own sinfulness and of their own need. We see again, Deuteronomy 22, You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. And so it's these things that the people are clinging to. It's these things that the people want to lay hold of. And it's not just touching like this. It's kind of grabbing and like this is, is the implication of of the words that are used by Mark in this. These things are prescribed by the law. Jesus is here portrayed to us, if we pay attention, as an observant Jew. He is a righteous man. 
He is a godly man. They're seeking Jesus precisely as a righteous person. Now, there's an element of superstition that's involved here. There's no command for them to lay hold of the tassels and therefore no promise that they'll be healed if they do this. This is not like the bronze serpent that uh, that Moses made uh, after they had all been bit by the snake. And they were commanded in that instance to look and they shall be saved. Here there's no such command. But there is a hope. There is a desire uh, that that this Jesus will have mercy upon them in their state of misery and powerlessness. And as many as touched it were made well. Similar to that bronze servant, as many as who looked upon the bronze servant were made well, so as many of them were made well. They had enough faith to touch the tassel and to receive healing from Jesus. Now, there may have been some who didn't, because it says as many as did this. Now, it doesn't mean everyone who was there did. There might have been some people who thought, no, this is stupid. I'm not touching a tassel. Okay. But Jesus accommodated himself to their weakness. Instead of demanding perfection of faith, absolute purity of faith, he met them where they were in a sense, and responded to their very imperfect faith. And he healed them. Those that had faith, anyway. We see that God is a compassionate God. It's hard to believe that when we read 1 Corinthians, uh, not 1 Corinthians, I had a typo. 1 Chronicles 21, okay, that Rick read for us. Uh, That text is a couple of sermons in and of itself, but let me kind of just quickly do this. We're tempted to, to read this and go, God is really cruel. And to miss what's really going on in the midst of 1 Chronicles 21. David has broken the covenant, okay? When David makes the census, okay, now now note this. Satan stirs up David to do this. It's similar to what happens when when Balaam gives an answer to the Midianites. Well, you know, God's going to bless them, but if you make them sin, then God's going to bring bad stuff on them. It's just like that. Satan cannot destroy David himself, but if he gets David to sin big, then maybe God will destroy Israel. It's always about destroying the seed in Satan's eyes. And so in the commands of the king, they were to not build an army. And so what David is doing is he's numbering the, men, the, the military-aged men of Israel to know how big of an army he has because he's starting to put his faith in his army instead of the Lord is God. That's what's going on. That's big, serious stuff. Okay? That's why God responds with what seems harsh on our part. And so through the prophet Gad, he hears 
about three options and he throws himself upon the mercy of God and the, the one that happens is the one that's shortest. It's going to be three days of pestilence. But note, each of these three things would weaken David's army, the thing he trusted in. Whether it's famine, whether it's defeat, or whether it's pestilence. That's why the focus uh, in the, the number that we're given is how many were struck down is the men, because this is about the army. 70,000. And if we, we, we're, we're tempted to say God is not compassionate, God is not merciful, and yet here the angel of the Lord is about to destroy Jerusalem and bring this pestilence to Jerusalem, and God stays the hand. There has been, had been enough suffering, and God stayed the hand. And so we see uh, that, that while God is holy and righteous, God is also merciful and compassionate. God understands our pain when people die. I'm drawn to Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That means his saints die. We're not sure exactly when that particular saint will die, but his saints die. Isaiah 57, the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. What does that mean? It means that some of them died to spare them greater tragedy, greater complications, greater misery. So we see God, sometimes his compassion is revealed in death. But we see that Jesus is compassionate. In Isaiah 53, he's called the man of sorrows, one who is familiar with misery. Uh, Jesus was not a foreigner to this, and it wasn't just the misery that, or the sorrow that, that he saw others experiencing, it's the sorrow that he himself felt as one who was fully human. It is Jesus who bore sin and sorrow. It's Jesus who became powerlessness in order to give us his power. Here's what I want us to also keep in mind. Sometimes I hear this phrase, um, the spirituality of the church. And usually when that's invoked, it's to say that the church shouldn't be involved in anything besides the gospel. But sometimes that, what that conveys is almost a Gnostic gospel. A gospel that's concerned with the soul, but is not concerned with the body. And what we see here is a Jesus who's concerned with the body, not just in this passage, but in so many that we've already seen in, in Mark's gospel. 
Jesus healed the man with the withered hand. Jesus healed the leper. Those are physical things. That's the body. Jesus fed the 5,000 men and the women and children that were with them. Those are physical things. The Jesus we believe in cares not just about the soul, but the Jesus we believe in also cares about the body. And He cares when you are suffering in your body and not just in your soul. And we see in Isaiah 53 that we are healed by His stripes. We'll get to more about the timing of that later. But we're anticipating the redemption of our bodies. He saves us body and soul precisely because we were made body and soul. What also stands out to me is that the disciples are essentially invisible here. Were they helping? Were they complaining? We don't know. The point is, is that Mark wants them to focus on Jesus. He wants his audience to focus on Jesus. And by extension, that's us. He wants us to be focused on Jesus. Something about Jesus is being revealed here, and the disciples are not as important right now. Jesus exhibits his compassionate power to the glory of God, just like with the man born blind, which is why I had him read from John 8. Or is it 6? My brain just went wonky. Nine. See, I got it wrong both times. Thank you, Rick. That is your name, right? So we see the the disciples had that question in John 9. Was this guy born blind because his parents sinned or because he had sinned? And Jesus says, neither. But that the glory of God might be revealed. And so there's a sense in which these people uh, were suffering, they were powerless, they were miserable, so that the glory of God could be revealed in Jesus, who sets them free from powerlessness, misery, and sickness. As we said, all of this has been unleashed by Adam. The second Adam has come, and the second Adam is great enough to undo what the first Adam has broken. And he shows his compassionate power. And that means two things, briefly. That we are to receive the compassion of God for our own misery and powerlessness. We are to implore him for help. And this is a time in which we see our misery and our powerlessness in a variety of ways. And we should implore him for help just as these people did. We don't see ourselves as Jesus. We see ourselves as the sick people who need Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. This quote from John Calvin, which is uh, the reflection, for those of you who have the order of worship. Now as we labor under every kind of disease till he heals us, let each of us not only present himself, but endeavor to bring others who need the same remedy. And so whether you're sick in body or soul, go to Jesus. Jesus. 
But Calvin reminds us, bring others to the same remedy. Uh, don't just hog it to yourself. Don't be like all those people who are hoarding all the toilet paper. Uh, don't be like those people who are hoarding all the ground beef and all the chicken and all the rice and all the pasta. I can't find anything. I'm not hungry now, but in a few days I might be. And you might have the food I need. But don't be like those people. Don't just think about yourself, but bring others that you know that need the ministry of Jesus. And so we show compassion to the powerless. We show compassion to the miserable people that we know. Matt had mentioned to me that Albertsons seemed to be doing a little bit better uh, when it came to supplies of foods. And so I took a gamble yesterday uh, afternoon after trying to make sure we got all the kinks out in our live stream. And next thing I know, I'm shopping for three other families in my neighborhood. And I almost came up empty on everything, but nonetheless. When I went to Walmart early this morning, I, I was shopping with them in mind. And so, you know, I, I got the, the largest tub of ground beef I could buy because I could only get one. And it's for my neighbor who needed ground beef. There will be people that need us to come alongside them uh, because they might be a healthcare worker who has no time, but their family needs help. Or it, it might be like some of our friends, our, our members who are essentially in lockdown in, in the, the place where they live because they're elderly and they need errands to be run. There are opportunities for ministry that are arising. Uh, people who are losing jobs that we might need to help. And it doesn't necessarily mean um, providing them with lots of money, but sometimes it's, here's a bunch of groceries. I went and got staples for you. Here, you should have enough rice and pasta and, and some, uh, maybe some chicken, <laughs> if, I can find, if you can find it. Serving people in these kinds of ways. Offering them compassion in the name of Christ because he is the compassionate shepherd. He is one who has borne sins and sorrows. And so Jesus, to wrap that question up, shows compassion upon the weak and miserable with his power. Thirdly, we've seen this all before. This passage sounds very familiar. Uh, we've seen ones like it. Why in the world is it here? What is it? How does it function within Mark's account of the gospel? Uh, this is, in a sense, a, a summary of his Galilean ministry, as well as a bookend, because that Galilean ministry began with a similar sort of statement of, of Jesus went proclaiming the word, and he was healing people and casting out demons. And so uh, these two short things kind of, you know, on both ends of, uh, maybe should do this way, uh, both ends of um, the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. The next section that we're about to enter next week is a section of teaching and then ministry among unclean people. So how does this function within the larger context, not of Mark, uh, but within the larger context of the history of redemption? This is similar. This, the healing of these people is similar to the forgiveness of the Old Testament saints. You see, in the, in the Old Testament, they were really forgiven by faith, uh, even though they were offering the blood of goats and bulls. 
And the author of Hebrews goes to great pains to tell them that it was the blood of those animals that really didn't do anything. For instance, uh, verse 11 in chapter, chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for one time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And then picking up in verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. And so uh, they were really forgiven on the basis of the final sacrifice that Jesus was going to make. They had experienced this provisional uh, forgiveness, uh, but it was real because Jesus was really going to die and really take away their sin. And so these people who were being healed in, in Mark 6 are healed as sort of a foretaste of the redemption of our bodies that is going to come at the consummation. But again, that too is rooted in the death of Jesus because by his stripes we're healed. Not in the now, but in the redemption of our bodies. Jesus here in this little bit is is revealing his glory as the Son of God and the Messiah, so that people will believe in him. He's performing these miracles to attest to the truthfulness of his message. Jesus is leaving the people of Galilee without excuse for not believing in him due to these miracles that accompanied his teaching on the kingdom. And what's interesting is that because Mark writes this and sends this to the Christians in Rome, Mark is leaving the people of Rome without excuse for not believing in Jesus because testimony has been born. We are without excuse if we do not believe in Him in light of these very very many miracles that are recounted in the Gospels that we've been talking about. They will bear witness against those who've heard about them but have not believed. There's a sense in which Jesus is is leaving these people without excuse. Not just in terms of general revelation, as it says in Romans 1, but now in personal ministry without excuse. As we think about this, let let us remember what it says in Hebrews 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if he was a compassionate shepherd then, he's a compassionate shepherd now, and he'll always be a compassionate shepherd. And so in this time of of COVID-19 and the the virus crisis or whatever you want to call it, we we are called to remember his compassionate power. Not just in Mark 6, but also throughout history. In, in the circles I run in in Facebook, it's hard not to, men- to see mention of uh, the, the ministries of Calvin and Luther during times of pestilence. Um, but uh, I, I came across Thomas Vincent, who was one of the great Puritans, and I've got some of his work 
works. But there's one that was written particularly in light of the fact that during his ministry in London in the 17th century, uh, he, they experienced the great fire of London, which killed many, but also the great plague of 1665. That was a, another wave of the Black Death or the bubonic plague that just ravaged England and particularly London. And in the course of 1665, 70,000 people in London died. That's just London. Okay. His own household lost seven. In the midst of that, he was preaching to numerous congregations. You might think that someone that has seen so much death and had been hurt so deeply by the loss of his loved ones would think that God is not a compassionate shepherd, and yet he continually presented Jesus as a compassionate shepherd and was calling people who were experiencing profound misery and profound weakness in the face of a plague they couldn't understand calling them to their God who had power and who understood. And so Jesus leaves people without excuse to come to him for restoration. Let's take these three ideas that we kinda, I kind of laid out with these three questions and let's kind of wrap them up together and the idea that Jesus brings us to unexpected places to do unexpected things ministry. These disciples moved from being swamped by the waves to being swamped by the sick. Uh, But in both cases, they see the glory of Jesus revealed to them in a more profound way. Jesus puts his power and his compassion on display in unexpected places. The unexpected places he sent them. Jesus sends us into unexpected places so that we will see his glory, so that we'll engage in ministry among the weak and the miserable. We don't know what this pandemic will bring, but I do know this. We will have opportunities to receive and to give ministry. Will this call forth the best in us or the worst in us? Praise Him if by the Spirit it brings forth love towards others. Cry out for mercy if it reveals the depths of our selfishness and sin. Let's pray. Father, uh, Your people are tired, and I fear I may have taxed them. Refresh them with the Jesus that we see here. Refresh them if they're miserable, if they're powerlessness, powerless, to see a God who is merciful, abundantly merciful, and a God who of, of unlimited power as well. 
to meet their need. And so may they come to him. In Christ's name, amen.